It's a privilege for me to stand in the pulpit today in the absence of our pastor who is in Greece with his family and several other families and members of our church on a mission trip. So we want to be in prayer for them. He emailed me earlier this morning and let me know that he was praying for us. And so we want to pray for them in return. In our reading plan, F260 reading plan, we are in the uh, minor prophets. The minor prophets are so named not because their message is uh, not as important as the major prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, but they are called minor prophets because they're short. That's the only reason that they have that designation. I want you to be turning into our reading for today as our Bible reader for the day David Lorraine comes. Uh, we're going to be in Hosea, uh, chapter 1 uh, through 3. Our reading is taken from uh, Hosea 1, 1 through 9. I've invited David. David's in our life group. That we got to know him a couple of years ago when we joined. I've cherished him as a friend. He married a Taylor's girl, uh, Gloria, and uh, he's a deacon, a uh, strong Christian man, and the most important thing in his life recently is he became a grandfather for the first time. So if you want to see pictures, he'll be glad to show you one after the service. So you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, and uh, Dave's going to read it for us. Hosea 1, verse 1 through 9. <clears throat> the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Thank you. You may be seated. Appreciate it, Dave. It's important to understand as background to the book of Hosea, the fact that after Solomon, his kingship ended, the nation of Israel was divided into two nations. There was the southern kingdom of Judah, which was made up of Judah and uh, the Bethlehemites. And then there was the northern kingdom of 10 tribes, uh, and it was referred to as Israel. Well, the Israel to which God called Hosea to prophesy sometime between 760 and 720 B.C. was an absolute mess. It was an absolute mess politically. 
We know from the historical record that from 753 to 722 BC, six kings ruled and four of them were assassinated. It was a mess morally because it was a mess spiritually. Warren Wiersbe says uh, of the, the times, murder, idolatry, and immorality were prominent in the land, and nobody seemed to know, be interested in hearing the word of the Lord. James Montgomery Boyce writes, it was a time of relative peace and great prosperity filled with empty hearts, shallow religion, and corruption. Now, God had a message that he wanted spoken to these people. The message was of his faithful, undying love for them in spite of the sin, but the message he wanted to send to them was the fact that they could not continue in their sin if they expected him to be merciful to them. And so God brought to Hosea on the picture, in the picture, and he gave him not just a message to speak, but a message to live out. The message was going to be, he was going to be the sermon illustration, not just speak the sermon illustration. And we're going to look at what the sermon illustration was in a moment, but what's going to happen as this plays out is that his undying love and faithful love for his wife, Gomer, will prove to be the exact kind of picture that the people of Israel needed to see to be reminded of God's undying love and faithful love to them as well. Now, what I'm going to do in the first part of the sermon is I, I had a 77-year-old Christian who's been in Christian ministry all his life tell me the other day when he found out I was preaching on Hosea. He said, I still don't understand what that book's about. So I'm going to give you a walkthrough, chapters 1 through 3, uh, to give you a summary of it so that help, at least those three chapters will, will be clearer to you. And then the balance of the book, in case you're curious, is fleshing out the themes that are found in the, the first three chapters. So beginning with chapter 1, we see the sermon illustration which God wanted Hosea to live out. Now understand, he is not role-playing this. This is real life for him. And so it says in verses 2 and 3, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And so when Hosea heard what God said, immediately he obeyed. And verses 3 through 9 reveal that he took a wife named Gomer and fathered one to three children by her. Now, the biblical record says they had three children. Scholars debate two things about Hosea's life. Number one, actually three, some scholars debate whether God really said this to him that this was actually an allegory, not real life. I don't buy that. The second thing they debate is whether or not she was already living in harlotry when he chose her or she became that kind of person afterwards. The third one is, how many of the children did he actually father? There, Some scholars believe that she, fought, she mothered two of those children 
in her adulterous relationships. It's really immaterial to the message, but just to show you what scholars have fun doing, I thought I would share that with you. Now, the first son is born, verse 4, and he's named, God says, name him Jezreel. Now, the significance of Jezreel is tied to King Jehu, who followed King Ahab, and it was God's selected person. And God chose him for a couple of reasons. Number one, to be the king, but also to bring judgment on the house of Ahab and Jezebel. Now, the problem with Jehu, when he committed, when he brought judgment in the city of Jezreel, he went overboard and killed far more people than God intended. So God said at that time, your, your kingship will last four generations and then it will cease. And so what God is first saying through Jezreel is, I'm going to bring judgment on the house of Jehu, and that house will end as far as living kings in the nation. But then at the end of verse 4, we see a second reason. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. God is using the, the name Jezreel, which means he scatters or he sows, God sows or scatters, to say there's going to come a time when Israel will be scattered. And we know that happened in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians overran, finally, uh, Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom, and took uh, as many of the people as they could into captivity and then shipped in uh, people from other countries uh, to repopulate the nation. Now, second, the child is born in verse 6, and it's a daughter. Her name is Lo-Ruhamah. Lo means no in Hebrew. Ruhamah means pity or mercy. And so what God was saying through his, her name was, I will no longer pity or, mercy, or have mercy on the nation of Israel. He had reached the point where he said, enough is enough, and I am no longer going to continue to do that. Now, the second son, verses 8 and 9, is born and named Lo-Ami. Lo for no, Ami for my people. And so God was saying through that child's name, there's coming a time where Israel will no longer be my people. I will separate myself from them because of their consent, continued unrepented sin. So that's the gist of, verse, of chapter 1. In chapter 2, we find three major pieces of information that are important to understanding what, what the book is about. In verses 2 through 13, we first see the sins of Israel enumerated. They're symbolically shown through Gomer and her adulterous relationships and infidelity against Hosea. And in verse 2, God says, bring charges against your mother, against Gomer, but actually it's charges against Israel symbolically. Bring charges against them. One commentator says, basically the sins enumerated in this passage uh, of chapter 2 can be broken down into three kinds of sins. Number one, idolatry. This is the official term for spiritual adultery. The Israelites were committing spiritual adultery against God with other gods, predominantly the gods of the Baals, 
the Phoenician gods, and also his goddess sidekick, Ashtoreth. Now look at verse 13 of chapter 2. This reveals that. I will punish her, meaning Israel, for the days of the Baals, when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, says the Lord. Now, what's important to understand about their idolatry, their spiritual adultery, is that, as we're going to see, they were continuing to maintain some of their relationship with God. They didn't want to give up God because of his benefits, but they wanted to dabble in the gods and get the blessings they thought would come from them. That is so typical uh, of life as we're going to see. The second sin, category of sins, was ingratitude. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. And then it goes on to say, For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. So what they were saying here is, we have all of these blessings, and it's the Baals who have given them to us. Instead of remembering it was God who had given them to them. So they took the blessings of God, dedicated them to Baal and other false gods, as if those gods were the ones who had given them to them. And then the third sin is the sin of hypocrisy. Verse 11 in chapter 2 says, I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her festival assemblies. These were all festivals and celebrations that God had ordained. And so basically what they were doing, they continued to enjoy the feast of Jehovah while worshiping other gods. We could describe that as they continue to go to church while committing and living a life of sin. That kind of hypocrisy. Now, verses 2 through 13 tell a second thing of important information. And that's the disciplinary actions that God says he's going to take against the nation of Israel to try to woo them, lure them back into a relationship with him. Now, I'm just quickly going through them. You need to read that to, to pick up on closer on what I'm talking about. But in verse 2, he confronts them with the charges of their sin. Also in verse 2, he appeals to them for a change of their love and their loyalty to him. He says in verse 4 uh, or 3, I'm going to create a spiritual thirst in you so that you long for me. I'm going to withhold mercy, verse 4, so you'll experience the consequences of your sin. And verse 6 and 7, I'm going to put roadblocks in your pursuit of other love, spiritual lovers. In verse 9 and 12, he says, I'm going to withhold blessings, so that will discourage you and draw you back to me. And then in verse 11, I'm going to remove your joy. Now, what was his intention? What was he trying to do? God, what God was trying to do was to create an environment where the perceived payoff of following him was better than the current payoff they were getting with the Baals. That is what causes us to convert behavior. 
when a perceived payoff is greater than the current payoff we're getting. That's when we're willing to make changes. And so God was going to do all of that to create that environment in hopes that they would be willing to turn back to him. Now, finally, in chapter 2, we see God's, that God's intention in all of his disciplinary action is to woo them back to himself. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 2. There's a name change coming to the, the daughter and the second son. Say to your brothers, Ami, and your sisters, Ruama. Now, what is missing there? The prefix lo, which means no. And so what God is saying is, where there was going to be no pity, now there will be pity. Where you were going to be not my people, now you're going to be my people. And so there was coming, he was saying, there's coming a day, even though all of this discipline is happening, even though these things I'm doing to woo you back, there's going to come a day, then you will be my people because I will have mercy on you again. Now look in verse 14 for some words of restoration. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, meaning Israel, bring her, Israel, into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. Look at verse 23. I will sow her, Israel, for myself in the land. And I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they will say, thou art my God. So that's the day that he says is coming. Now, chapter 3 reveals another tough assignment that God gives Hosea. Apparently, Gomer has not only committed adultery, she has done so in prostitution. She is now a slave to those uh, who would organize and, and do the prostitution in her town. And God says to her, I, to him, I want you to go find her. I want you to pay the redemption price for her freedom and bring her back to live with you and to be her husband and to love her once again. Don't you know, Hosea at that moment wanted to say, say what? Do what? You want me to do what? Wasn't it tough enough, Lord, that you wanted me to marry a woman that I knew from your word would eventually commit adultery on me? Wasn't it enough that I did that? Didn't that send the message to Israel sufficiently? But God said, I want you to do it. So what did Hosea do? Those verses tell us, verse 2, So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. He paid the redemption price. Now with that as background, I think a fair question to ask at this point is this, so what? So a prophet of God 2,750 years ago obeyed God and married a harlot and accepted or either fathered or accepted into his home three children by her out of adultery. What does that say to you and me 2,750 years later? 
Well, I'm going to answer that question by asking and answering two other questions. The first one is this, what does the story of Hosea teach us about us, about mankind? First of all, it teaches us that we are still prone to idolatry, even in the midst of our own spiritual sophistication. You see, Israel's propensity to worship false god is inherent in the human spirit. We've all caught the bug. Now, I know what you're saying. Jerry, I dare you to come to my house and find an altar to the Baals or to the Ashtoreth. I dare you to find an idol on my mantle. Well, just because there's not an idol doesn't mean that we have not chosen to idolize something besides God. You see, false gods are these. Anyone or anything that rises to the level of worship and adoration above or in addition to God. False gods may be in place of God or in addition to God. A false god gives us the sense of purpose and meaning that only God was meant to give us. A false god dictates behavior and attitudes more so than God does. And Bob Russell, who's a retired pastor of the great Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, he defines false gods as anyone or anything that becomes more important to us than God himself. Our God, little g, is whatever we love with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. That means a false God doesn't have to be evil in itself. It can be something good that has become too important to us. Well, that being the case, what are some of the gods of the Baals for modern contemporary Americans? I have a list on the board. Sports, science, intellect, reason and logic, a secular worldview, family, especially children and grandchildren, pleasures, hobbies, comfort, personal time, personal space, social media, pain and hurt, unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, addictions, personal preferences, and the pursuit of happiness. I heard a, a, a radio broadcast focus on the family this week, and the young man speaking said that the generation 37 years on down, they see themselves as the center of their universe, and happiness is the ultimate goal in their life. What's interesting is many of those 37-year-olds are raising children who have the same goals in life. I'm sure that's an interesting mix in your home. But you know what I thought about as I've pondered what that man said? I believe it's crept all the way up to all of us. You see, we used to think it's the, 
The inalienable right is the pursuit of happiness. We now believe our inalienable right is happiness. And that is why we are such a contentious, unhappy culture, is because we believe we have the right to be happy. So we are still prone to idolatry. But also, number two, we're still prone to ingratitude regarding the blessings of God. Now, how does that play out in our lives? First, by living as if we're the ones who have provided our blessings for us, and thus we believe we can call all the shots regarding the resources that we have in our midst. Financial would be an example. Time would be an example. Emotions would be an example. Our talents would be an example. We believe that we are the ones who generated all of that, and therefore we can hold all the rights to how they're used. But also a second reason or way we show ingratitude is by using the resources which God has given us in ungodly ways or for purposes that ignore the will of God regarding those resources. Number three, we're also still prone to hypocrisy. We're also still prone to want to experience the rituals of worship while living in the midst of our sins. Years ago, I heard of a, a pastor who preached a phenomenal sermon on adultery three weeks before he was fired for committing adultery with his secretary. Now, I would say that's hypocritical, would you not? Does that qualify? Okay, I'm sure that helped us feel good, because we haven't done that. But let me ask us some questions. Is our hypocrisy the declaration of our love for God's Word, but we never pick it up and read it except on Sunday mornings where we're sitting in the pew or life group? Is our hypocrisy our declaration of our belief in the power of prayer, but we never get around to praying? Is our hypocrisy the de declaration of our love for God and His church, while speaking critically or even maliciously about a fellow church member. You see, we too are prone to hypocrisy. So those are three things that tell us about man. What are some things that these verses tell us about God? Number one, God still speaks to his children today. You remember back in February when Joy Behar said about Vice President Pence <clears throat> that when he said that God, that Jesus speaks to him, that that, that was what she thought was the, the ultimate in mental illness. <clears throat> well, if that's what mental illness is, sign me up. Because what is so important for us to know today is that God doesn't just speak to prophets and to preachers. God speaks to every believer through the Holy Spirit by means of His Word, the Bible, 
through prayer, through the counsel of wise Christians, and through the circumstances of life. And what's important to understand is he speaks to us in ways that are unique to us as individuals, and we can, over time, having heard, having tested, and proven that to be the voice of God, we can learn to recognize when God speaks. Back when I was senior pastor of First Baptist Landrum, I needed to go to visit a church member in the hospital in Hendersonville, and so on the way up, I decided to grab lunch at Cracker Barrel in Hendersonville. As I sat down or the server brought my meal, I said, I'm about to pray and give God thanks for my meal. Is there anything I can pray for you about? She said, yes, please ask God to provide rent money by next Monday or I'm going to be evicted. So the whole time that I was eating, I I was thinking about this young woman and the fact that she might be evicted. And so I said, well, I'm going to give her a larger than normal tip to at least help out some. And I looked in my wallet, and there was what I normally would have given for the, the tip. And then there was a bright, spanking, brand new $20 bill I'd just gotten out of the ATM in Landrum. So I said, okay, I'll give that. So I put the the money down with the $20 bill, and I heard a voice that I recognized in my spirit say, Jerry, that's not enough. My response was, but God, that's all I've got. You have an ATM card, don't you? Yes, Lord. There are banks in Hendersonville, aren't there? Yes, Lord. I want you to give her $200. I said, yes, Lord. So I went, made my hospital visit, came back to the bank, got the money, and brought it back and got it to her. How did I know that that was God speaking to me and not indigestion from the meal? It's because I had field tested that voice many times over many years of my life. I knew it was God speaking because I guarantee you I wouldn't have made that up in my spirit. So the first thing we need to hear from the story of Hosea is God speaks to his people. But number two, God's love is unconditionally conditional. Let me say that again. God's love is unconditionally conditional. Now, we like to talk about the fact that God's love is unconditional. And what that means is wholehearted and unlimited, unreserved, unquestioning. But what we need to understand is God is not by that obligated to put up with our shenanigans, to put up with our sin, to put up with our idolatry, to put up with our hypocrisy to put up with our ingratitude. And so God comes through Hosea to tell us that there will come a point where I will draw a line in the sand and say enough is enough. And just like in the life of Israel, he will expose our sinfulness to shame us. He will create spiritual thirst within us. He will withhold his mercy and allow circumstances and consequences to shake us. He will put roadblocks to hinder our pursuit of other spiritual lovers. 
He will withhold blessings from us, remove our joy, warn us through his word and other believers and discourage us through unrealized hopes and dreams. But why? Is it just for the joy of punishing us? No. It's to woo us back to cause us to, <clears throat> to confess and repent of our sins and come. For you see, even when God says enough is enough, his enough is designed to lure us back to him. But then there's the third thing we learn. <clears throat> God's love is such that he paid the ultimate price to free us from our spiritual prostitution. We marvel at his willingness, Hosea's willingness to marry a woman who would commit adultery, to remarry her and to pay the price to get her out of her prostitution. But there's a reason why James Montgomery Boyce says that Hosea is the second greatest story in all the Bible. That's because there's a much greater story in the Bible. And that story goes like this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And when you accept that, you experience a forgiveness that will overwhelm you because you understand it is totally undeserved. It was the summer of 1979. I was serving First Baptist Church in Monroe, Louisiana as minister of youth. Our youth group and three other church youth groups combined together to go to a youth camp up in the mountains of, of uh, Arkansas. For some crazy reason, we decided to make the trip from our church area to the mountains of Arkansas in a caravan of nine vehicles in the mountains. A church bus from one of the churches led. I drove our church bus, an old school bus, at the rear and the seven vans in between us. Directly in front of me was a lady who did not want to be driving that church van anywhere, let alone in the mountains. I kid you not, she put on brakes going straight uphill. <laughs> well, I had a CB radio in, the, in my bus, the other driver in the other bus, so we started talking about her driving habits. To the point that our levity grew, I saw some buzzards flying in the sky, and I said to him, you see those buzzards? They think her van is about to die. And then it hit me. Right before we left to left town to go on that trip, her minister of you said, by the way, she has a CV radio in her van, but she's not going to use it. Just listen. I realized at that moment that more than likely she had heard every word that we had said about her driving. As discreetly as I could, I told the other driver we needed to cease and desist. 
And for the rest of the trip, I stewed in my embarrassment, and my uh, not just because I knew I'd been caught, but because I had been so unchristian to her. The Holy Spirit did a real good work in my life on that rest of that trip. When we got to the camp, unloaded our kids and our luggage, I got together with the other driver. I said, this is why I said to stop talking. We need to go find Keith and tell him what has happened and ask him if we can talk to her. So we found Keith and told him. He said, yeah, I already know. She's over there crying, and she's ready to leave and go home. She's so upset. I said, can we talk to her? He said, sure. So I walk, we walked over to her, and in great humiliation and humility, we apologized to her and asked her, will you forgive us? Now, I knew at that moment she didn't have to. I had no idea if she would or not. But then she looked up into my face and his, and she said, I forgive you. She proved it by staying at camp for the week. That was one of the greatest gifts that I have ever been given in my life. Forgiveness that I did not deserve. The greatest gift of forgiveness I've ever been given that I did not deserve was when right before I turned seven years of age, I asked Jesus to come into my heart and he not only forgave me of my sins, he forgot my sins forever. We're coming to our time of invitation. Hosea and his story matters a whole lot because it reminds us that the love of God is such that he will not give up on us. His love is faithful. His love endures. You may never have accepted Christ and experienced that forgiveness. I invite you, don't say no to his love today. During our invitation, come so that we can let, help you know how to accept him as Savior. It could be that you're here realizing I've got some business to take care of with God. I'm a Christian, but Jerry Long has nailed me right between the running lights today. You may need to come and simply kneel. For whatever reason, after I pray, we'll start our hymn of invitation, and you come if God leads. Father, thank you for your love demonstrated through the person of Hosea. But more importantly, thank you for your love demonstrated through the person of Jesus Christ. I pray during this time of invitation, that we will be willing to do whatever business with the, that the Spirit prompts us to today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.